what can the G7 do to stop the war in Ukraine? The leaders of the world's biggest powers say they're imposing war sanctions on Moscow. But is that enough? And can the group remain united against Vladimir Putin? Hello, I'm Adrian Finnegan. This is the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help to define major global stories. So let's bring in our guests for today's discussion from Berlin. We're joined by Ulrich Bruckner, who's Professor of Political Science at Stanford University in Berlin. From Washington, D.C., Doug Bando, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute. And from Oslo, Glenn Deason, Professor of International Relations at the University of Southeast Norway. Gentlemen, welcome to the programme. Um, Ulrich, let's start with you. So G7 leaders will stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes... As long as what takes, what is it that G7 leaders want and how long is long? Well, all these questions have not been answered yet. What we saw was a strong signal, and that's the symbolism of summits of that kind, that sometimes feel a bit like 20th century, as if we are not having phone calls or Zoom meetings. So it's more like we send a signal, but we don't go into detail because everyone is affected differently from the sanctions and everyone also has a different agenda or is more or less careful with all the balances that need to be considered. Doug, what do you make of it? How long is long? And, and what is it that G7 leaders actually want here? I don't think they even know. Clearly, perspectives differ in the different capitals. Uh, countries are affected differently. They have different past relations with Russia. Uh, they have a different, I think, willingness to tolerate cost. As a, in terms of where we're going, everyone would like to see Russia to lose, but that doesn't necessarily mean a victory for Ukraine. And in many ways, I think that is the biggest issue, is the uh, emphasis going to be on trying to reach some kind of a ceasefire and peace, or is the emphasis to help uh, Ukraine have some kind of a military victory. On that, we don't know. And those outcomes are very different and have a very different implication for the cost and the length of time. Glenn, victory for Ukraine, humiliation for, for Russia. What is it the G7 leaders are after? Well, uh, that's kind of unclear, because when you talk about victory for Ukraine, what does this mean? Because uh, at times, Ukraine has expressed this interest in uh, in, in uh, reconquering all of Donbass, even taking back Crimea. So this would uh, entail an actual war with Russia. And again, part of the Russian motivation behind this is obviously uh, to stop the NATO expansionism and um, uh, this, this increasing amount of American weapon system close to its border. So if Russia would pull out, obviously, this would uh, uh, these weapons would only keep pouring in. So so. I'm not sure how that would, how that victory would be even possible. I think Russia would fight this definitely uh, all, all the way to the end. So, um, and uh, yeah, so I, I just don't uh, see uh, see clearly how victory has been conceptualized here. Uh, also, it's unclear uh, how uh, even a stalemate uh, is going to result in any kind of a uh, diplomatic solution because again. Uh, uh, the fear from Moscow then would be obviously that the West would take advantage of a, a temporary peace agreement to merely rearm Ukraine and keep pushing uh, NATO. So I, it's, it's very, it's very, it's a, it's a lot of big statements, but without any clear uh, operationalization of this, a clear objective, what, what this would actually mean. 
All right, so Ulrich, they put on this united front, as you say, they made this strong statement of support for Ukraine. But what is actually going on behind closed doors, do you think? How long can their unity last, given the economic consequences of the war? Well, that's what I meant by the different balances that need to be considered. And in my humble understanding of what has been the motivation or the objectives, because I'm clearly don't understand how Putin ticks. There was a calculation that the West is post-heroic, not willing to fight a war, not taking a risk. We don't believe in anything. We are nihilist. We are secular. And so as wimps as we are, it would be easy to go in and to achieve objectives that made no sense in terminology like a denazification or whatever time. So what we have now is a united West, a much stronger NATO, an even extended NATO, a stronger investment in rapid intervention forces. So basically the opposite of what Putin tried to achieve. But we also have a situation in which all the different leaders face different domestic pressure. Some struggle more with inflation, some are more dependent on energy imports. And some are weaker than others when we look at the internal discussion about what is a fair price to pay for expressing solidarity or what can a leader push through. If we look, for example, at Macron, his position was way stronger before the parliamentary elections a few days ago. And this is all something that needs to be taken into consideration. Doug, who's leading the G7 right now? OK, Chancellor Scholz is hosting uh, this meeting, but, but who's in the driving seat as far as policy is concerned? Is the US at the moment taking a back seat and following the rest, or is it actually leading, do you think, at least in terms of the war in Ukraine? Well, in terms of the war, I think the US, broadly speaking, has driven the process. The US has contributed substantially more in terms of money and weapons, it uh, you know, has the advantage of having the real military you know, that dominates uh, NATO. Uh, frankly, the country that most European countries have cheerfully uh, cheap ridden on you know, for decades. So there's an element of which the US has a natural leadership role there. But uh, you know, it's not alone. The other countries matter, and it matters a lot to have other European countries indicate they are prepared to do more. And we see uh, even a country like Turkey can throw a spanner in the works over the issue of bringing in Finland and Sweden for its own purposes. So th there's leadership, but there's not domination. I think that what we see going forward is indicated. Macron has his own domestic issues. Certainly Germany, I mean, you know, a complicated political situation, a three-party government bearing significant energy costs. Even in the U.S., the politics is not going to be easy outside of kind of Washington, you know, support for a deep commitment to Ukraine is not necessarily that strong. I talked to my non-political friends and they are asking why $40 billion when that's a lot more than Europe has done, why $40 billion when we have a trillion dollar deficit. And we see in the Republican Party increasing willingness on the hard right to ask questions about this. So this is going to be a very difficult process going forward. Nothing is guaranteed. Uh, Glenn, uh, Glenn the, the, the European Union, while represented at this this summit, uh, doesn't the G7 itself doesn't represent all uh, European nations. How does the the rest of Europe, minus the UK, France, and Italy, 
view the war in Ukraine? Well, I guess Europe is very split in many ways. The Western European countries are more cautious, while the countries like Poland and the Baltic states, they're more hawkish, more aligned with the United States and the UK on this matter. Um, so I, I would say that uh, initially, I think we've had a lot of unity because of uh, uh, this invasion by Russia took everyone by surprise and the shock, uh, which was why you have this common interest in balancing this common adversary. But I do believe that uh, a lot of this um, uh, unity was based on the premise that uh, NATO would have a victory over Russia or uh, Ukraine supported by NATO. Uh, but I think uh, you, what you will see is not just a split between the US and European, but, but uh, within Europe as well, you will see more of these uh, divisions uh, displaying themselves now that the conflict is not going our way. Because again, Russia is winning now on the battlefield and the sanctions have backfired terribly on the Europeans. So it becomes therefore a reasonable, a very reasonable to have more divisions within the G7. Uh, so, well, for example, I've made the argument that the US and the UK would probably like to see this war going for a while because it has many good objectives for the US. So it imposes block discipline within the West, which the US has not been previously able to achieve. Uh, we, the U.S. has been able to get the Europeans to decouple from Russian energy and economy, which they didn't uh, do in the past. Uh, we also see that the U.S. can now extend this European divorce to China. So Ukraine will be a bulwark against Russia for the foreseeable future. And uh, the U.S. has this opportunity of making Ukraine and Afghanistan for the Russians to bleed dry its economy and its military. So it has many opportunities for the U.S., but that's why I mean there's a split because for the Euro for the Europeans there's a much higher cost and incentive therefore to push end to this war because uh, simply because they're paying a higher price they don't want an Afghanistan on their continent their weapon storage have been depleted from all these transfers to Ukraine the sanctions are hard hurting the Europeans much more not just this temporary energy crisis and high inflation but we'll also see that European industries will no longer be competitive on international markets as all of this cheap Russian energy and metals are now exported to Asia so. The production cost will therefore increase dramatically in Europe. And overall, the Europeans become more and more dependent on the US as a result. So all these EU goals of strategic autonomy will now collapse. So I think you will see more push now from, for example, the uh, Germans, the Italians and the French to, uh, to have some more diplomacy for to sit down with the Russians. And you saw this on display now uh, with these three leaders from, the, from Italy, Germany and the France going to Kiev. Uh, asking to start negotiations with Russia. Meanwhile, you know, thereafter, you have uh, Johnson coming from the UK saying this is not the right time for peace and the Americans uh, sending heavier weapons. So I, I think that uh, this, as the conflict continues to go the wrong way for us, I think it is, uh, these divisions within the West is going to just become more and more uh, obvious. Ulrich, how long before the European electorate begins to demand that their governments ease the sanctions and pull back on this war. Are people in Europe prepared to endure a winter of power cuts or rationed energy supplies, do you think? Will it come to that? Well, if things continue like this, there is no other way than to restrict not only industry, but also heating or have other means that clearly show that we are part of this war, not as a party of war, but we are massively affected, far more than the United States. But it's very difficult to predict because we don't have this one European electorate. We have very different conditions in each and every member state. And we also have different communication techniques by the more or less popular leaders 
that also play a role until there is something like a change of power within European Union member states. At this point, of course, German politicians would love to see a diplomatic solution for this, but public opinion is still very strongly in support for actions of solidarity towards Ukraine. And Olaf Scholz or Emmanuel Macron at this point in time don't really have much to fear. Uh, Doug, uh, I just want to give you an opportunity to respond what Glenn, to what Glenn was saying about uh, the US perhaps uh, liking to keep this war going uh, for the moment. Uh, and then I want to ask you, would the G20, do you think, be as solid in its support for Ukraine and condemnation of Russia uh, as the G7 is? Well, the broader you go, the less support you find for the US-European position. Of the top 10 population countries in the world, only one is taking this position, America. You know, very notably, not only China, but India have resisted. Indian purchases of Russian oil have skyrocketed very dramatically. But you go beyond that. You look at Brazil, you look at South Africa, you, know, you look at Indonesia. I mean, these are countries that have not jumped on the sanctions bandwagon. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, the global South is much more cynical about European and American pretensions and morality. I mean, the US believes in a rule-based order, except when it doesn't, and that it invades countries and occupies them, even if it's against uh, international law and it kills a lot of people. Uh, you know, the President Biden is talking about human rights and about to make a trip to Saudi Arabia to beg the Saudis, who've killed hundreds of thousands of people in Yemen, to provide more oil so the US can sanction Russia. I mean, the, the problem is those kinds of inconsistencies really play out uh, in uh, other countries whose view is much more cynical. They don't like the aggression. I mean, so, you know, Russia's clearly in the wrong, but they're also much more skeptical of following leadership that they frankly aren't quite so happy about. And the potential of Indonesia inviting Russia to the, the G20 meeting you know, adds a, a, quite a complication. Exactly how that would play out if it happens, I think, uh, would be uh, difficult for everyone involved. Um, Glenn, while the G7 understandably sees the war in Ukraine as critical to, to global security, what about uh, the rest of the world? How supportive of the G7's position are Asian African, Latin American countries, to, to what extent to, to, to many countries, while sympathetic uh, towards Ukraine, simply have to put their own citizens first? Uh, well, that it kind of shows with the, the numbers who's joined in on these sanctions. And, well, uh, it's pretty much restricted to NATO. Uh, the rest of the world uh, hasn't really joined in on any of these sanctions. Uh, but I would agree with Doug. It doesn't mean that uh, they support the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, by no means. I think uh, the mo most countries would uh, condemn this. Uh, however, uh, while there seems to be some consensus around condemning it, uh, there's not that much interest in punishing it. Yes, correctly, because uh, there's not that, not that many see this moral authority of the West, and also they see more dubious interest behind this in terms of knocking out the key adversary as opposed to standing up for democracy as it was. Um, but it's also uh, more recognition around the world that uh, that the, even though this is war is Russia's fault for invading, that uh, NATO obviously provoked uh, this to a great extent. I mean, this is you hear this around the world, and uh, you know, not just sometimes in, inside NATO as well, with uh, Turkey now saying the same thing. You even heard the same from the Pope. So you, so this uh, there seems to be a large consensus that Russia, uh, sorry, that, sorry that uh, NATO provoked this, but then uh, that Russia shouldn't necessarily have invaded for that reason. Uh, but 
but but you also of course have this economic interest behind it so it's for the europeans for example to dictate to the indians that they shouldn't buy any russian oil or gas it seems uh, yeah, very, very provocative especially as the west buys uh, russian oil and gas um but but overall i think they will look after their own interest and one also have to see these huge opportunities for asia now because uh, european economies have been very competitive because we've had access to all this cheap russian energy and metals and now Russia is, uh, as they're diverting their entire economy towards the east and they're pre preparing themselves for a permanent divorce with Europe, uh, the Asian countries will become much more competitive as Russia is offering even discounts to Asia for their oil and gas. So, so I, I think they will look after their own interests and not get involved in what is effectively a European conflict, uh, a 30-year-old proxy war between NATO and Russia, which has now spilled in and begun to destroy Ukraine. Ulrich, has the G7 signalled clearly enough that it understands the gravity of the global commodity price uh, crisis and, and other uh, economic shocks linked to the war and that they will take realistic steps to address them? Well, the question is, what would realistic steps be? And what has been said before, that repeating the Russian myth of NATO is threatening Russia doesn't make it any more credible. NATO has no appetite to be involved in a military conflict with the second largest nuclear arsenal in the world. That makes no sense. What threatened Russia was the economic prosperity west of Russia. If we compare Ukraine and Poland, then Poland became four times richer by joining the European Union. And if the anti-Ukraine would do the same thing. That would undermine the credibility of an authoritarian regime in Moscow. So if the West would give in and say, well, actually, we didn't expect it to be so expensive, and it also has externalities on the rest of the world, we stop the sanctions, what would be the situation on the ground? We could possibly find something like a frozen conflict, but then both sides would try as much as they can to strike back and to win the upper hand. That is not the end of the conflict. There is no military solution in this conflict, and it needs more than giving in of the one or the other side. This would only, in my understanding, be a solution if other heavyweights like China would step in and do their contribution to stop it. Uh, Doug, the G7 statement said that the, the group will foster coordinated initiatives that promote global food security. Uh, to what extent should that, along with the rising price of, of fuel and commodities, be their number one priority, at least in terms of maintaining support for the war in the rest of the world? Well, there are obvious humanitarian reasons to do it. Set the war aside. You know, the, the lack of exports, particularly from Ukraine in terms of grain, are uh, posing an extraordinary hardship on poor countries that are least able to deal with it. The problem is, again, it's not clear exactly what the West can do. That, uh, you know, there have been proposals to try to forcibly open, uh, you know, ports of Ukraine in the Black Sea. Uh, that would require, number one, cooperation from Turkey, which is not at all in my mind, likely. But second, that would be itself a potential casus belli. And I think what we have to recognize here, the danger of this is, is the longer it goes on, the more dangerous I think it gets, which is, you know, for Russia, this is a vital interest. For Russia, this is an existential interest. 
We don't have to think it should be, but it is, in my opinion. It's not for the West. So I think that Russia and Putin are quite willing to risk and spend a lot more. And along the way, Ukraine is the, the primary victim. I mean, the World Bank figures the economy will be cut roughly in half. Millions of people have uh, you know, fled the country. Cities are being reduced to ruin. So the longer we go, the more dangerous it could spread, the, the more uh, the Russian... I mean, the danger of a question of a new use of nuclear weapons is one most people assume won't happen. Nevertheless, to the extent they fear a loss, I think it becomes more dangerous. So uh, the, there's so much at stake. And certainly the issue of food is huge. But I don't know how we solve that absent ending the war. That is, un unless one is willing to forcibly try to open the Black Sea and get the grain out, the question is, otherwise, are we as the West prepared? to share its resources, to accept higher food prices at a time of raging inflation. I don't think the Biden administration would for all of its humanitarian rhetoric. The Democrats face a potential disaster in November by-elections uh, to kind of raise prices further, to appear to be giving away American product. And I think Europe faces the same difficulty with energy prices rising at home. What can it do in terms of trying to ease the food shortages abroad? Glenn, I've got less than a minute here. Just a quick answer, please. Bearing in mind what, what Doug was saying there about Russia being pushed into a corner. Are the sanctions against Russia working? Are they having the desired effect? Well, they're having some effect. Uh, so, well, so far, the, of course, the, the West's main goal was to destroy the Russian economy, financial system and the ruble. Well, so far, we see that the economy is stabilized, the financial system is stabilized, and the ruble is much stronger than it was before the war. Uh, however, a lot of this punishment or the pain of sanctions will probably come later on. So I think the worst of the sanctions is yet to come for Russia. Uh, but, but that being said, the point of uh, sanctions is to change the political behavior. And I don't see Russia changing its policies because... For Russia, this is deemed to be an existential threat. NATO expansion towards the border, it's said for more than 20 years, is an existential threat. Mm. So they're not going to give up because of some uh, economic problems. So they will probably continue to fight this uh, to the end and uh, uh, only yeah, exacerbating the conflict. So I, 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 it depends how we define the effectiveness of sanctions. Okay. All right, gentlemen, we're out of time. Many thanks indeed uh, for being with us today. Ulrich Bruckner, Doug Bando and Glenn Deason. And that's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Mohammed Elaichi, Wasama Alani, Abdurrahman Wasami, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Deepak Pushkaran. The program was edited by Hatam Chebel, Lenin Nguyen, and Joda Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again on Tuesday. Mm -hmm.